We have been looking the last couple of weeks, we have taken a break from our Genesis sermon series to look at some of the themes that are launched in the book of Genesis, but which the New Testament then picks up and builds on. And so we have been looking particularly at the question of life and death. We have been looking at this issue of what does it mean? How is life acquired? What is death? Where does it come from? And we continue this morning by looking at how Paul addresses this question of everlasting life, of eternal life. What will the life be like in the world to come? And he addresses this in 1 Corinthians 15. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, that would be on page 1143. Now, there are parts of Scripture which easily stand alone in tiny bite-sized nuggets. For example... Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That can stand all on its own. In fact, the context of the rest of the book of Proverbs really doesn't add much to our understanding interpretation of that verse. On the other end of the spectrum, there are scriptures which must be taken as a whole, as an entity. Uh, uh, for example, Ecclesiastes comes to mind. One commentator uh, describes Ecclesiastes as an essential whole. You start plucking verses out of Ecclesiastes without context, you can get yourself in a whole lot of theological trouble in a hurry. It hangs together. The book of Job, for example. Much that Job's friends say sounds good, and then you get to the end of the book of Job, and God rejects Job's friends and all that they have had to say. If you don't take it as a whole, you get yourself in some trouble. Our text this morning falls somewhere in between those two extremes. So relax, I'm not going to read all of 1 Corinthians this morning. But we are going to look at all of 1 Corinthians 15. It really does, our section, we're going to focus the sermon on those final eight verses, nine verses, I guess, technically, uh, those final nine verses, but, but that's a conclusion. It's a summary of the whole chapter. So to understand the conclusion, to understand Paul's summary, we need to look at what he has to say through all of 1 Corinthians 15. So I invite you to look back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 as we now read through the word of God. It's a long chapter, and yet here at the Shore Harvest Church, we believe that the Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. So if you want to know how to live this life, and if you want to know how to live in the next life, you've got to know this book. So long passages do not intimidate us at all. We welcome the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you literally. It's not in the Greek I remind you, but rather I want to make known to you the gospel. I want you to understand its implications. You Corinthian believers have claimed faith in the gospel, but you have not understood its implications in your life. The gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice the tense there. You are being saved. We tend to think of salvation as a past tense thing. I'm a believer, therefore I am saved past tense. But Paul here says it's an ongoing process. And that's going to become important to our understanding of the rest of the passage. Now, Paul points out that this truth, this idea of you being saved is conditional. Look what he says there. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That salvation is only by faith in the word of God. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Paul wants to point out 
He's not making this up. He didn't, this is not his gospel in the sense that he invented it, but rather it came from God through him. And I would remind you that we all humbly fall under that same authority. It is not my word being preached this morning. It is God's word. The best I can hope for is to be a faithful conduit, a faithful vessel by which this might be transmitted to you. For I delivered to you of, uh, 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 as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament scriptures at this point in history. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, this is not the sequence of his appearances given there in the gospel accounts. Rather, he appears to the three women first, then to John, then to Cephas. Uh, Cephas is another name for Peter. Um, why this order here? Peter was a big deal in Corinth. If you were familiar with the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians, there were these factions there. There was the, the, the group that followed Peter, that followed Cephas. I think he's simply playing to that group because Peter was such a big deal in that church. Then he, verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Again, Paul's point is this. I'm not making this up. You can check it out for yourselves. Go ask those who saw Jesus. Talk to Peter. Talk to a, uh, 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 any of these 500 who witnessed the risen Jesus. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verses 8, 9, and 10 uh, deal with the validity of Paul's uh, uh, apostleship. We're going to skip down out of verse 11. Whether then it was I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. Whether it was I or they. Again, there are these factions in Corinth. Some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Peter. Some say, I follow Paul. And Paul's going, I don't care where you differ on other things. How can there be any difference or dispute on the resurrection? Peter and Apollos and I all preached exactly the same thing on that subject. On that, you must be united. There can be no difference of views on the question of Christ's resurrection. He is risen. And that's the only position a Christian can have on that subject. Picking up at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead by everyone who's preached to you, dear Corinthians, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul is fond of the phrase of being in Christ, united to Christ. We are one with him in his baptism. We are one with him in his death. We are one with him in his resurrection. But that's a, a two-way street. As with Christ, so with the believer. But as with the believer, so with Christ. So if there's no resurrection, then Christ could not have been raised. You can't have, you can't cut this apart. You can't break us apart from Christ. You can't say Christ was raised, but we will not be. 
because we're one with him. If he was raised, we will be raised. And if there is no resurrection, then he's not raised. Go home. There is no point in Christianity. It turns on this issue right here. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, oh, sorry, I think I read that already, didn't I? Oh, no. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. There's no point in your faith. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is everything. It's the whole ball of wax. If there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. It's utterly stupid to attend church and to believe these things if you deny the resurrection. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We're not an agrarian society so much anymore. We lose sight of what first fruits means. But it is the idea of that harvest beginning to come in. The promise of more to follow. And if Christ has been raised, then there is more resurrection to come. For as by a man came death. You recall that's what we saw last week in Romans 5. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, verses 24 through 28 are some fascinating eschatology, but they're really not relevant to what we're doing this morning, so we're going to pick up in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, we should have jumped over verse 29. Yeah, we don't really know exactly what this was all about, but apparently... Uh, people were being vicariously baptized for those who had already died. Probably the situation was this. Someone had professed faith in Christ and died before they could receive water baptism. And then some relative or friend of theirs is then baptized on their behalf. And Paul is really not commenting on, on the practice so much as he's saying, listen, the very fact that you practice it reveals that you believe in the resurrection. Deep inside you is the knowledge that there is another life. For if there wasn't, if you truly believe what you're claiming about the resurrection, you wouldn't bother with the baptism for the dead because there'd be no point. Because what happens to this body and in this body apparently doesn't matter because there's no resurrection. He's saying basically the practice among the Corinthian church themselves demonstrates his point about resurrection. He goes on now to point out his own life, verse 30. And, and why are we in danger every hour? That, I think, is me and the other apostles. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Uh, literally, I face death every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, look at this, guys. Look at the way I live. Look at the way I've been willing to give up everything in this life. I've been willing to risk everything for Christ. Why? Because I saw him. I saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it convinced me. I'm absolutely convicted. 
that there is a resurrection. And if there's a resurrection, then I'm happy to give up everything in this life and bet everything on the next one. That's what Paul's arguing there. And he says, look at all the 12. And by the way, that's one of the more convincing arguments in my mind of the resurrection. Uh, 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 can you imagine you know, 12 men willing to, to go to their deaths over a lie? One of them would have broken. Somebody would have gone, nope, don't, don't execute me. I, it's actually not true. We actually did steal the body. He really isn't risen. No, they all gave up their lives on this. It is inconceivable that it's a conspiracy theory. No conspiracy theory can stay that tight for that long. Picking up in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. The Greek is much blunter. It just says one word, fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. Notice that Paul doesn't really spell out the nature of the resurrection body, only that our bodies will undergo a change at the direction and the behest of God. That God will do with us what he does with other parts of his creation. He will make them what he wants them to be. He then lists a bunch of examples of the different types of bodies and the different types of glories and the different types of creativity of our God. I'm going to skip down now to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Paul does not spell out the details of the resurrection body, but he notes one essential truth. This body, the body you have right now, can die, it can rot, it can decay. This body is of a sort that is subject to the second law of thermodynamics. It's subject to disorder and entropy and chaos. Not so with the body that comes out of the grave. Verse 43, it, this body, is sown in dishonor. Um, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Spiritual here doesn't mean non-physical. It means non-fallen, non-sinful. Remember, Jesus' body was physical. He ate. He spoke with people. They saw him. Thomas touched him. Our resurrection bodies will be physical, but they will be spiritual in the sense that they will be fitted to the new creation, the new that is to come. We will be made new creatures so that we can exist in that new creation. Thus it is written, verse 45, the first Adam became a living spirit. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We looked last week at the first and last Adams and their respective roles in human history and human destiny. But it is not that the spiritual, I'm sorry, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. If you follow Adam in sin, you will follow Adam in death and decay. But if you follow Christ by faith, you will follow Christ in eternal life. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so now we come to Paul's conclusion in our sermon 
text. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, a euphemism for death, but we shall all be changed. Paul says, listen, I know I just explained how a body goes into the ground, suffers decay, and then God will resurrect it into something new, but that's going to be true of you also. If you're alive when he comes, you also have to be changed. Your body also will not fit in this new world to come. You must be made a new creation. But it's not that you're going to have to die and then wait for your body to decay. Your body will be changed. It will not to be a hindrance to your entry, verse 52, and it'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I'd love to go into more detail, but the idea is that it is instantaneous. If you're alive when Christ come, comes, you're not going to miss any part of glory because you have to spend time decaying and then being remade. You will enjoy the fullness of glory without missing a beat, without missing a moment of it. When will this happen? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Trumpets throughout scripture are calls to people. They are able to be heard over the din of battle, heard over the hustle and bustle of the city streets. They could blast out a warning or blast out a call to unite. In Exodus 19, when Moses, when God's getting ready to meet with his people for the first time after they've been freed from slavery, he tells Moses, when the trumpet sounds from the mountain, then my people shall gather at the base of Sinai. That's the point here. That doesn't matter what's happening in life. You will not miss God's coming. Christ's coming will be heard by you. It'll be seen by you. It'll be known by you. There's nobody who's going to be left behind. There's nobody who's going to be forgotten. There's no believer who's going to be left in the grave because, you know, they didn't hear the coming. It is a sure thing. The trumpet will sound. Verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25, 8. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Spirit of God, make known to us the beautiful truths of this passage. Let my words be yours. Let the, the, the things that I say be consistent with the truth of your word. And if I say anything false, let it be immediately forgotten, so that you are known so that your greatness and goodness and glory in the resurrection is proclaimed to our hearts and minds this morning. For the sake of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. I want to look at three things as we consider the, the new creation. Paul is saying, hey, you got to be made new. You can't enter eternal life the way you are right now. you got to be transformed. you got to be changed. I want to look at three quick points. The conversion to that new creation... 
the conversion to that new creation, the conquest that ushers in the new creation, and the consequence of that coming new creation. Conversion, conquest, I'm sorry, conversion, conquest, consequence. Those are the three quick points we're going to look at this morning. First, the conversion. Paul does not lay out the specifics. Perhaps he did not know them himself. Perhaps they weren't revealed to him. But he makes plain that the conversion that has begun in us now spiritually as believers will be completed physically. That just as death radiated from the, the, the spiritual to the physical, so too will our conversion in, etern- in, in eternal life work itself out from the spiritual to one day include the physical. That which has begun in you now will one day to come, come to completion, and it'll come to completion even in your bodies and include a change there. The corruption which was sealed by a physical act in Eden will end physically at the last trumpet. You will be changed, not replaced, not utterly remade, but changed. Chapter 32, paragraph 2 of our Confession of Faith says it this way. On the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Self-same bodies. You're going to recognize each other in heaven. You're going to know who you are. And at the same time, going to be radically different, radically changed. We will not be altogether new in every way, but we will be new in important ways. I hope that means I will have hair. You know, what's more important than the outward changes is that you will be made not into what you might want to be, but what God wants you to be. What he always wanted you to be. What you were created to be. Now think about that for a moment. You're going to say, wait a second, you know, but if I want to be this, what if God wants something over here that I don't want? That's the beauty of the new you and the new creation. The new creature you're going to be is it's not even conceivable that you'll want something God doesn't want. What he wants will become your wants. Whatever he wants for you is what you'll want to be for yourself. It is not even possible that you're going to struggle with what God wants you to be in the new creature that he's making you into. You know, Throughout history, different churches, different Christians at different times and different places have needed to hear different words from the Spirit. And in our New Testament reading, we saw the Word of God through Paul to the church up north in Thessalonica. They up there were worried about the dead in Christ. What happens? You know, we're waiting for Christ to come back, but we're alive. Some of our brothers and sisters have died. What's going to happen to them? Thus our New Testament reading. Paul says to them, don't worry. Don't mourn like there is no hope. The dead in Christ shall rise. And in fact, they get the honor of rising first. Now, the church in Corinth, they had a different issue. They weren't worried about the dead. They were worried about the living. You see, down in Corinth, a city that was utterly Greek in its thinking, they were heavily influenced by Plato. 
Plato had this crazy view that the, the physical realm was inherently bad, inherently evil. And so in Greek culture was this, this idea that to be, to die was to be set free from this world so that you could enter heaven. And they're worried about the opposite. Some of them are worried about what if I'm alive when Christ comes? I can't go into heaven like this. And Paul says, you're right. You can't go into heaven like this, but you're going to go to heaven because you're going to be changed. You're going to be made into the new body that is suited to the new creation. You will not be disembodied souls for all of eternity, like Plato thought. You will have your body in eternal life. You know, in Eden, when Adam sinned, he changed everything. The whole essence of the created order fell subject to decay, to death, to the second law of thermodynamics, as I mentioned earlier. Creation became subject to disorder and chaos and entropy. But here is something we often forget about Adam and that process in Eden. Had Adam obeyed, had he ignored the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate only from the tree of life, that too would have led to a radical change in the created order. Technically, at creation, Adam was susceptible to death. You and I are bound to death. We are subject to death. But he was susceptible to it. It was hypothetically possible that he could die. And in fact, he did die. The conversion which Paul is speaking of here is not a return to the Edenic state. We're not going back to Eden. That's a mistake too many of us make. For in Eden, Adam was on trial. He was experiencing a time of testing. You see, for he was not created in the fullness of goodness. We talked about this in our unfolding of the book of Genesis. Creation was good in the sense that there was no sin, there was no evil, but it was not good in the sense of completion. God wanted the world full of people, there were just two. God wanted a city, the new Jerusalem. There was a garden. God tells them to rule over, to go out and have the dominion and build those cities and make more people. There was an incompleteness to the created order. And one of those things was the incompleteness of Adam's obedience. He had no sin, but he had no righteousness either. He hadn't obeyed. He hadn't affirmed his place under God. Had Adam, and, and scholar, we have no idea how long this would have gone on, but the general census is, uh, consensus is this, that had Adam obeyed for a time, had he, exi- uh, had he uh, uh, surpassed the trial, he would have been affirmed in his immortal state and never been susceptible to death. That's what we look forward to. Going back to Eden is going back to a time of trial. Do you really want to live all of eternity being tested and tempted all the time? At every turn, temptation to sin, and you could fall out of that estate? That's not a place of rest. That's a place of exhaustion. But what Paul is saying here is that you are going to be restored, not to the state in which Adam was created, but into the estate for which he was intended. For Christ has obeyed on your behalf, so that that state is now available and accessible. You get to go 
to the intended state. Living freely without fear of failure. Living freely without fear of falling. We will not be converted back to the state of Eden where we could sin. How did Augustine say it? Non passe peccari. It is not possible to sin in glory. The resurrected, glorified person cannot sin. We will no longer be susceptible to death, let alone subject to it, for we shall no longer be able to sin. And that flows us into our second point. If, if that's the idea of conversion, we're going to be converted into that state of being, now we look at the conquest that makes it possible. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin. That is, the way by which death's venom enters our being is through sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been missing. I had the joy this week of having the, a, a revolution in my thinking about this passage that was familiar. Because I'd always misread this word sting. I always thought of it as the, the, the lingering uh, effects of a slap. Uh, getting hit with a stick and it leaves a sting. And I had read it as though the pain of death is sin. And that always seemed backwards to me. Death is the pain that comes from sin. Because I'd misunderstood what he's saying here. The sting of death is sin. The injection. Imagine for a moment you are highly allergic to bees. I've known a few people. Highly allergic to bees. Such that one single honeybee could kill you. That would be for you the sting of death. The sting of death is the injection of the venom that brings you down. And how did death enter into who we are? Through sin. The sting of death is sin. Adam and all who descended from him died, were susceptible to death, were subject to death, because they were stung by Adam's sin. And so death entered into our being, who we are. We looked at that last week. But Christ's resurrection, in Christ's resurrection, death suffered its first defeat. I attended the University of Michigan, and I'm a U of M sports fan, a Wolverine fan. Go maize and blue. But constantly losing to your arch enemy is exhausting. From 2012 to 2019, eight years, the, United, the University of Michigan lost every football game to Ohio State. Ugh. It just wears on you. Mercifully, in 2020, we did not lose because there was a COVID outbreak in the U of M football team. <laughs> I still don't believe it. But last year, this past fall, we finally beat Ohio State. We didn't just beat them, we whooped them. And so it creates in you this hope that maybe something has finally changed. Maybe there's something new in the University of Michigan football team. Maybe the, the promise of Jim Harbaugh is finally going to come true and we can beat our enemy. But the hope of football is a, I hope so, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus is an I-know-so hope. Billions had lost 
to death. And it appeared that he was going to lose to death. He had avoided the sting of death, which is sin. He lived a life without sin. He lived a life in complete and perfect obedience to his heavenly father and yet died anyway. You want to talk about hopelessness. In that moment at the foot of the cross when he died, there had to be more than a few people scratching their head going, what? How can this be? But then on that first Easter morning, he blew the doors off from death. He exploded the grave, and he burst out and said, I'm alive! And because I'm alive, you can live. I have defeated death because I avoided sin. I was never stung by sin. I lived out perfect obedience to God. And therefore, I didn't deserve to die. Now, by the way, his perfect life is not a recipe for you. You don't attain victory over death by doing what Jesus did. Yes, we should follow his example, but it's not a recipe. We're not going to get to victory by trying to live a perfect life, for we cannot do it. But Paul says in Romans 4, he was killed for our sins, our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. The court of heaven overturned the decision of man. The courts of this earth said, guilty, you deserve to die. And the court of heaven stepped in and said, innocent, he deserves to live. But rather than refunding to him all of the mocking that he had suffered, rather than refunding back to Jesus all of the price he had paid, rather than giving back to him all the dignity he had lost, all the humiliation he had undergone, and the pain of death, Jesus said, leave it and let me count it for others. Let me take the price I paid and apply it to other people. Raised for our justification. The, the conquest was the conquest of sin. This is why. Look at verse 55. This is really interesting. Paul quotes Hosea. And I'm going to say, I'm going to dare to say, hear me out. Don't get him to walk out. I'm going to say this. Paul misquotes Hosea. He twists Hosea. He rips it out of context and uses it in a way that Hosea is not using it. For if you go back, if you take verse 55 and you go back to the book of Hosea, what you see there is God is furious at Israel. And God is ranting through the prophet Hosea and saying, I've had enough. They don't deserve to be protected. And in a verse just a couple lines above what we have here, God says this through Hosea. The iniquity of Ephraim, that is Israel, is bound up. His sin is kept in store. In other words, I, you know, uh, the promise of salvation is that your sin shall be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. God is not removing their sin from them. He's binding it up. He's holding it in store so he can pour it out in judgment on them. And it's at that point in Hosea, he calls out, Where are you, death? Bring your victory. Kill these people. Where are you, grave? Where is your sting? In Hosea's context, these are words of condemnation. You see, this is the issue. It's not that Paul doesn't know how to rightly interpret Scripture. It's that Paul's making a beautiful rhetorical point. The resurrection changes everything. 
It flips everything upside down. It turns everything on its head so that these words that weren't once a threat, we can now take and make a mockery of death with them. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul says the resurrection of Jesus has turned things on their head so that even the threat of death is now a mockery of death. As he quotes from Hosea. The conversion that's going to happen at the end is a final transition of our bodies to bodies that can live in eternity with God. The conquest that made that possible came when Jesus lived a life that was sinless. And finally, we look now at the consequence. And we're going to deal in this more next week, so we'll only touch on it briefly here in verse 58. Therefore, and whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask ourselves, what is it there for? And it links all that's been taught to what he's about to say next. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and if you're familiar with Paul, you should go, uh-oh. Whenever he starts using soft, kind, mushy language like this, he's about ready to say something hard. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, we will talk more about this next week, but basically it's this. Paul is saying, listen, because of the resurrection, because of all the wonderful, glorious truths we've just talked about, you should not be tossed about. You should not be running from one Savior to another. You should not be today talking about Jesus and tomorrow about Allah and the day after that about Buddha and the day after that about mindfulness and the day after... No! Stay in Jesus. That alone is the place where there is a hope of life. He alone is the place where there is the promise of eternity. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The new Sunday school class we're launching next week is going to be focused specifically on that. How do we do this? What is the work of the Lord? How does it play out in the church? What are the gifts we've been given to make it possible? And the sermon next week, we'll look at this some more also. But the concluding sentence, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Anybody who's lived for any length of time has scratched their head and said, is it worth it? Is what I'm doing worth it? When I was a high school teacher, there were years that I would stand at graduate, sit at graduation and watch kids go across the stage and go, what am I wasting my life? They haven't changed one bit. That kid's as big a yahoo going out as he was coming in. What difference have I made? And Paul says, you know what, dear mother? If you raise your children faithfully in the Lord, it's not in vain. If you add even one of your children to the kingdom of heaven, if even one of them stands at judgment one day and says, I have Jesus, it's not in vain. Dear auto mechanic, if you're the one guy in town who's honest, forthright with your customers, who says to yourself, I'm going to fix their cars because I don't think things should break down. Because I don't think this world is supposed to be this way. Your effort to fix cars is not in vain, dear mechanic. If you do it for the Lord, the resurrection promises you are doing it in a lasting place. 
our conversion to a new creation, to a new being, will happen when Christ comes back. And we will be transformed into creatures that can live in the eternal state. That conquest was made possible because of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know how that applies to you, you need to run to him. You need to come to me, one of my fellow elders, and say, what brother must I do to have eternal life? And the conquest that Jesus brought about has consequences even in the here and now. It ought to change how we live. And all of this because Christ is risen. Lord, you are alive, we know it, and yet we don't live like it. As we prayed earlier, forgive us, teach us to walk in faith, teach us to rejoice in the glorious truths of the, uh, of the resurrection, teach us to be a people who are excited about you because you are alive and are coming back and will one day apply to us all the truths of your resurrection. We pray this in faith. We pray this in a wonderful hope. We pray this looking forward to that day. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.